Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to this special coronation celebration, coronation celebration <laughs> edition of a grand tour with my great great granddad. My name's Ed Hill, and this is the podcast dedicated to the journals of my great great grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, written back in the 1840s. Ooh, yes. So it just happens to coincide that I'm completing this episode on the same day as the coronation of Charles III. So I thought I should mark it in some way. Whatever your thoughts on the monarchy, it's a significant historical event in the annals of history of this country. Shame about the weather. <clears throat> so welcome if you're tuning in again to the podcast thanks for returning i should say the usual things if you google a grand tour with my great great granddad you should find the podcast coming up on all the various podcast platforms that are available do subscribe um, that's really good if you can it helps to grow the popularity of the broadcast and uh, again, if you want to engage with me, you can do through the Twitter account, which is uh, Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G, that's the number 3, at 3G Grand Tour. There's also a Mastodon account, which is at Scotted at Universodon, and that's uh, GG Grand Tour. And there's also a Facebook page, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. And by all means, message me on those various interactive ways which you can on uh, social media. So perhaps I should say a little bit about this episode coming up. It's quite a nice one in a way. It's a little bit different from previous ones in that William is not talking so much about the architectural sights and sounds of Milan. In this one he's talking about the markets and very much all the food that's available. And he also talks a little bit about the various dishes that he encounters as well that are commonplace in Milan at the time. So it's very much a much more everyday account of things going on in Milan at the time. So it's nice from that point of view because it does give you kind of insight into uh, daily life a little bit and the things that people bought and how they cooked a little bit. 
and also they're sort of dishes and things that we're sort of familiar with now that William seems to be encountering for the first time. So it's quite interesting when uh, he talks of things that are, I think we could say, fairly familiar to us now. He's describing them as if they are a new and unknown dish or foodstuff. In this episode, he begins at the Piazza Vezieri, which is where the vegetable market is, and then he proceeds to then talk about all the various other markets that are in Milan and the foods that are available. And just at the end of the episode, there's a little bit of his, I think you could say now, fairly familiar opinions about things religious and the Catholic Church in particular. So I hope you enjoy it. As I say, it is an interesting episode, this one, and a bit different from certainly some of the previous ones we've had. Leaving the Piazza Fontana, we will proceed to that of the Piazza Verziere, or the vegetable market, a place that must be seen not once, but through the different seasons of the year, to notice the various productions of nature that are here offered for sale in the greatest abundance. Potatoes, spinach, and salads of a dozen kinds, and these all the year round. Asparagus, green peas and beans, early in the month of April, radishes, cauliflowers in the greatest abundance at all seasons, kidney beans, vegetable marrow, tomatoes, cucumbers, onions, yes, and cartloads of garlic. Of fruits, melons, shaddocks, a shaddock or shaddocks is a large citrus fruit, a bit like a grapefruit. It's actually bigger than a grapefruit. It's also known as a pomelo. I think it's kind of more widely known as a pomelo but the kind of English name for it, which is obviously the one that William is using, and the name that was used in places like Jamaica and bits of the empire, is Shaddocks, after a Captain Shaddocks introduced it into the island of Jamaica to grow it there. I did actually buy one once. I think it was because he talks about them quite a lot as well when he's travelling across the Atlantic and visiting Caribbean islands. And they are rather nice. The flavour is slightly sweeter than a grapefruit. I remember it came wrapped in a polystyrene-type net. <laughs> I think I might have bought it in a shop in London. can't remember where. I would have thought it was available here locally. But I can see probably why they're not as popular, because the rind and skin is actually very, very thick. So you have to cut through a lot of very thick skin and rind to then actually get to the nice citrusy fruit below. Pumpkins, cherries, apricot, peaches, green figs, almonds in immense profusion, apples, pears, chestnuts, filberts, hazelnuts, and walnuts, and then the purple grapes in all their glowing luxuriance, lemons in abundance, oranges but few, and them from Naples and Portugal, red and white currants a few, but gooseberries I never saw one in the whole country. Plums are not plentiful, and what they have is of a very inferior kind. Neither have I seen any rhubarb, the vegetable so much used in England and France. Of herbs there are parsley, sage, thyme, mint, tansy, Tansy, it's basically a medicinal herb. 
it's actually very common. You've probably seen the plant growing around. It's kind of got a yellow flower. I describe it as a button flower and fern-like leaves. For centuries it's been used for things like smelling worms from the body, arthritis. Also it was used at one time in heavy doses to induce abortions. So um, it has quite strong chemical elements that actually make it somewhat toxic as well. So um, it contains a thing called thudione which can bring on convulsions. The other thing that it was used a lot for was as an insect repellent. People would put it on their windowsills to keep the flies away and apparently about the time of the American War of Independence it was used as a preservative for meat. It would be rubbed with tansy to keep the flies off and keep the meat in better condition for longer. They even planted it near potatoes to keep away Colorado beetles. But in terms of eating it, it was used as a flavouring for puddings and omelettes. And in Yorkshire, they used to put it in biscuits to serve at funerals, interestingly enough. So it kind of has, I don't know, it seems to have a sort of a ring of death about it, really. It seems to be a very much a two-edged sword when using tansy in your cooking. I think it has been described as adding a fruity combined with pepperminty flavour to food. But these days, I don't think we'd use it much Apparently Jack Daniels, the whiskey maker, when he used to drink his whiskey, used to add a tansy leaf to give it a particular flavour, I suppose, a bit like lemon, maybe. So tansy, certainly not commonly used in cooking these days, I would suggest, because of the inherent dangers. <laughs> would you like some tansy with that? Oh yes, please. Just a dash. <laughs> Tansy and others, but during the season the number of apricots, melons, peaches and grapes brought into Milan and sold in the markets and the streets is really astonishing, and such also is the lowness of the price, that they are within the reach of everyone. Indeed, the principal food of the lower classes in summer is fruit, and they always eat bread to it. In winter their principal food is boiled rice and vegetables, roasted and boiled chestnuts, salad and polenta, a sort of pudding made of maize or Indian corn, and such is their fondness for the latter article that I have actually seen a man sit down and eat three pounds of it, besides the quantity of bread at one meal, and then moistening the mass by swallowing a quart of wine. Their ministra, that's soup, so it's minestrone soup as we would know it, their ministra, or boiled rice, appears to an Englishman a strange mixture. It consists of rice boiled in broth and shredded cabbage, dry kidney beans or black peas, potatoes, etc. And then it must be well seasoned with their everlasting garlic. Indeed, the use of this vegetable amongst the Italians is universal, for I do not think there is scarcely any article prepared for food without their contriving to infuse some of this disagreeable plant. I just thought I'd stop here with William's comment and opinion about garlic, because <laughs> it reminded me, reading it again, of how attitudes have changed so much over the years to foreign food, particularly in the UK. He describes it as disagreeable. I mean, let's face it, historically, British food has a bad reputation of being plain and dull and <laughs> not very tasty. What we call sort of meat and two veg, a lump of meat potatoes and a bit of overboiled vegetable like cabbage maybe some gravy if you're lucky just sort of made me think of how much attitudes have changed particularly about something like garlic 
because I can remember growing up as a kid, for example, French and Italian people using garlic in the food and smelling of garlic was the butt of a lot of English humour. One example I can particularly remember is a comedy carry-on film, Carry On Henry about Henry VIII, where Sid James playing Henry VIII keeps complaining about how one of his French wives smells of garlic is played by Joan Sims. I can't remember which queen she plays in the film. Joan Sims played a character called Queen Mary of Normandy in Carry On Henry, not actually one of Henry VIII's wives. There's literally scenes where, you know, she whiffs of garlic because that's all she ever eats all day. And there was this sort of general attitude to food and things being spicy and a bit tasty and not really being what English people eat or would enjoy. Just reading a little bit about it, I think this is quite a valid theory on it in that apparently in Victorian times, in William's time, the use of garlic and spices in British food or English food was sort of growing and, and there was a bit of a French influence of food becoming tastier. But then, of course, two world wars happened, and particularly in the Second World War, when rationing happened. I think rationing happened in the First World War as well. But certainly in the Second World War, obviously that massively reduced the amount of ingredients and stuff that was available. So it's been suggested that the British palate just got used to very plain food during the time of rationing, which went on post-war so it didn't actually end until about 1953 I think so well after I mean the war ended in 1945 and we were still in this country restricted to a great degree in terms of sort of the amounts and types of food we could get hold of so there's been this suggestion that that may be why attitudes to so-called foreign look that prevailed certainly when I was growing up in the 70s still existed there's quite a famous English food writer called Elizabeth David, who very much in the post-war period, having spent a lot of time in Europe, brought back a lot of Mediterranean recipes and heavily influenced certainly English home cooking. And I, My mum definitely was influenced by her because she had all her cookery books and I remember my mum talking about her quite a lot. I think my mum actually was a bit more adventurous in her home cooking than maybe some people were, but I suspect it was quite a middle-class thing, that, to be honest. By the way, if you want to do a bit of additional research, Google Elizabeth David and read a bit about the history of her life. She uh, certainly managed to pack an awful lot in. Now, the idea that garlic is in any way sort of exotic or unusual and it just seems so antiquated and in fact these days it's actually hard to find any references to garlic being humorous by british people and stuff anyway i mean it's such a sort of almost thing of the past you know actually the things that mainly come up all the, the great health benefits that are supposedly meant to uh, be involved with eating garlic i suppose it's just a natural thing that as post-war living standards did begin to improve slowly and people did go on foreign holidays and become a bit more adventurous with their food. But now I have seen old carry-on films and just the sort of... <laughs> the attitude to sort of foreign food. It is peculiarly what we would call postcard humour type thing that is very dated now and just seems, quite frankly, bizarre. But it does have a reputation for certain things in terms of uh, the aroma that garlic produces on people's breath. Apparently the Queen, the late Queen, was very anti-having any garlic in her food. You know, you may be thinking, well, that makes sense because she had to talk to uh, a lot of people all the time. And apparently, generally in the royal family cuisine, garlic is a bit of a no-no. <laughs> 
of course, the Queen herself was a product of the uh, Second World War era, so maybe she in some way encapsulated those views about the use of garlic in food and uh, Britain. <laughs> oh, I don't know, it's a bit like Irish jokes and things like that. French and Italians and Europeans smell of garlic and that's... <laughs> Oh dear. But there we are. William obviously doesn't like it either. It's quite hard to pin down the history of things. So maybe early Victorian era of garlic wasn't being used much in British cuisine. And maybe it progressed more. And then the World Wars came along and some people have said, well, other countries also had rationing and their cuisine remained tastier. But it does, to me, make sense, that theory that rationing was something that made... British people's attitudes to food rather conservative and, and dull for a long period. In the 1990s, it was very much a thing amongst chefs to claim that British food was the best in the world because it had improved so much. Specious, I think, is the word argument, pointless argument. Who produces the best food in the world? It's all totally subjective anyway, isn't it? So... That reminds me, eating out in those days was just so much rarer as well. Growing up, there was really only one good Italian restaurant in our town, Giovanni's. And uh, if your parents went out to eat there, of course, us kids didn't go because <laughs> too problematic. It was a big deal if they went out to Giovanni's to have a meal. I remember reading Oliver Postgate's biography who was the creator of Bagpus, where he did all the stories and the narration and uh, animation. And Peter Fermin did all the uh, artistic side of the development of the uh, small films, productions like uh, The Clangers and Bagpus. <whistles> I remember reading in his uh, biography, they'd got another contract to do some more series for the BBC and to go out and celebrate. They said, oh, <laughs> we all went out to Giovanni's because they didn't live far from us here. In fact, I used to go past on the bus the barn where uh, the clangers and bagpuss and everything was made. And in fact... And now, now it's time, it's time for, for another boring childhood anecdote. I actually went there because my mum... <laughs> oh, terribly tweet. My mum was a beekeeper, and Peter Furman's wife was a beekeeper as well, I think, and beekeeper associations and clubs... One of the things they do is they invite everyone round from time to time during the summer months to uh, have a look at their hives and have a cup of tea and a slice of cake. And I'd occasionally get roped into going along to one of these things. We were just so compliant then as kids, weren't we? We just <laughs> did what our parents said. Come along to this boring <laughs> thing. Try to drag my children along to something like that now. They'd just tell me quite frankly and... In no uncertain terms, where to go? Anyway, it was at Peter Furman's house, and uh, there on the shelves in the sitting room or dining room were all the clangers, all the real, the real actual clangers were all there, which was nice. And uh, Peter Furman gave me an Ivil the engine badge, I remember. And uh, I've been telling people that anecdote for uh, years and years, and they've probably heard it several times over and over by now. <laughs> I am digressing from this fact about garlic being considered a not nice vegetable by William. When I was a child, my favourite food to consume was plain white bread, heavily buttered with nice salted butter and strawberry milk. 
which wasn't even a good milkshake. It was just milk, thin watery milk, flavoured and coloured to have a sort of strawberry flavour. And I would consume gallons and tonnes of that. A bit like the gentleman eating the three pounds of polenta that William mentions. All I used to eat were white bread, butter and strawberry milk. Three meals a day, seven days a week, 12 months of the year. And it never did me any harm. Apart from my brain and my legs not working. The Piazza Mercato, or General Market, adjoins the vegetable one. And here in the spring, but more especially during Lent, the supply of fish is very great, brought principally from Lago Maggiore, Lake Maggiore, and the Lago di Garda, Lake Garda, pike of an enormous size, roach, dace, and eels, many species that I've never seen before, salmon trout from the lakes, and most splendid salmon and herrings from the Mediterranean Sea. The supply of turkeys, geese, and ducks is very good, but a thousand chickens, the quantity consumed in Milan, is enormous, and they are also of most excellent quality. But there are two other articles here which you do not see in an English market. Sparrows, and all kinds of small birds, blackbirds, thrushes, and every variety of finch tribe. The other is frogs, and I do not know a more disgusting sight than to see a parcel of ugly old women sitting, skinning them alive, and cutting off their heads, the poor creatures continuing to jump about a long period after this revolting process. The supply of game is not very large, Lombardy having no game laws similar to England, but any person may procure a licence from the police to carry a gun and have the privilege of killing game, and such a thing as a prosecution for trespass is unknown. Consequently, I've seen hares, pheasants, partridges, and woodcock, and rabbits are moderately plentiful. In the spring, the Milanese eat a considerable quantity of young goats, and speaking from experience, I can state that it is no despisable food. There is no regular flesh market, the butcher's shops being scattered in different parts of the city, and under very peculiar restrictions, and also closely watched by the police. All the cattle are obliged to be slaughtered at the public abattoir, or slaughterhouse, and the retailers are of two distinct kinds. Those that are licensed for the sale of manzo, or beef, must sell that alone, and those for soriana, or cow beef, must sell that and nothing else. Just to explain, soriana is beef that's from older cows and cattle. So it's a bit like we'd have the distinction between lamb and mutton with sheep. So manzo is the beef equivalent of lamb, and soriana would be the beef equivalent of mutton. The cattle are large, but the beef is in general of ordinary quality, owing to their not being properly fed, and in a great measure to their great age as the oxen are all overworked by a mistaken policy that they do not like to part with them. Consequently, it is no uncommon thing for them to be 12, 14 and even 20 years old at the time they are slaughtered. They have no turnips here, and very little beetroot, and what there is of the latter article, the people boil and eat themselves. As for the sheep, they are regular skeletons, long-legged brutes looking more like greyhounds than sheep. However, the Milanese eat no mutton, what is consumed in Milan is used by the German residents, but then the veal is of most excellent quality and flavour, 
and fortunately at all seasons of the year in great abundance. Pork there is none properly so speaking. They never think of killing one of those animals under £500 weight, and I have actually seen some slaughtered that have weighed £840 English. And when they have slaughtered one of those enormous animals, they use them something similar to the way northern fishermen use a whale. They take and skin them, in the first instance, and convert their hides into leather. Then they take the fat of the body and salt it to be used in their minestra, minestrone. The flesh is in the next place taken from the bones and sold fresh. The small pieces being chopped up are made into sausages, similar to Bologna ones. These, if properly prepared, will keep a very long period, and when highly seasoned with their everlasting garlic, are excellent food. The hams are either sold fresh or cured, but in neither way are they to be compared to English ones. The skin is taken off the legs in one entire piece, and then stuffed with mincemeat and herbs. These, when boiled and afterwards left till cold, are most delicious eating, and there is not an Italian preparation, in my opinion, at all to be compared to them. The hogs in this country are scarcely a degree removed from their wild breed. The flesh is therefore coarse, and the colour universally black. Besides those markets I have mentioned here, there are four others. One for the sale of livestock outside the Porta Comacina, one outside the Porta Ticinese for livestock, poultry, fish and vegetables, etc. Another in the Borga de Porta Comacina for poultry, fish, fruit and vegetables, and lastly, a similar one in the Borghetta de Porta Teneglia. The corn market is held in the square of the municipal palace, situated at a short distance from the Piazza Mercanti. The supply of grain is abundant, and the wheats of the most excellent quality, and the bread is much cheaper here than in England. Indeed, during my residence there, any baker's bill averaged eight shillings and eight pence per calendar month for a family of six persons, and also having a great number of visitors. The greater part of the bread eaten by the lower classes is a mixture of maize or Indian corn with wheat flour, and in my opinion, confirmed by actual experience, much more nutritious and wholesome than bread made entirely of wheat flour. Vast quantities of wheat flour is manufactured into macaroni, vermicelli, etc. Both for home consumption and for exportation, the trade of Milan being very considerable at one time in this article. But now, both in France and England, the larger manufacturers of this article have been established, and of course have a tendency to diminish the trade of Milan. Macaroni, however, is a most excellent and nutritious article of food, and the Italian method of preparing it is very superior. They first take and boil it in water, then stew it in a shallow vessel with a veal gravy, pour it out onto a dish, and sprinkle grated cheese over it. A dish of this, followed by a veal cutlet, vegetables and bread, with a pint of wine, will make any person an excellent dinner, for which at the most respectable hotels they will not charge you more than ten pence English. I just thought I'd stop here for a moment to ponder a little bit about macaroni, because he describes this dish of it being covered with a gravy, and then a cutlet of veal and vegetables afterwards as well on top of it. <laughs> Certainly meals were extensive in that time followed by lashings of wine but it did make me think when he was talking about how it was a Milanese export and then uh, it had reduced a lot because basically he's saying because factories in France and in the UK start producing it as well firstly I think it's just interesting to say that he uses the term macaroni and I think he's very much referring to what we would call dried pasta now if you go back into the history of pasta, its uh, origins can go back to China where noodles and flour and water and that was prepared in a certain way to produce 
a kind of noodle. You know, its origins in many culinary cuisines around the world could be dated back to very early times, I think 2,000 years BC. But briefly, pasta as we know it today in the Italian sense seems to have come from a kind of Arab influence, firstly in Sicily and then spread to the rest of Italy. So in the 1100s, as a reference to pasta being eaten in Sicily and then its popularity grows around the rest of Italy. The important thing about macaroni or dried pasta, of course, is that it could be stored easily. So that's what made it such a universally useful food, particularly linked to the durum wheat that pasta's made from. It can be stored in this way for a long time. Of course, you get a lot of interchangeable terms. You know, when you use the word spaghetti or pasta or macaroni, they're all interchangeable. Apparently, the actual first recorded use of spaghetti, the word spaghetti, is 1874, so it's well after William's time here. So he's talking about macaroni, and apparently also we tend to associate pasta with tomato sauces these days. But again, that reference to a recipe that uses tomatoes and pastas together it actually dates back to about William's time, about 1837 or something. So this style of eating it that William's describing here is quite interesting because, uh, you know, there's no tomatoes. It's just this gravy and then the cheese on top. <laughs> if there are any food historians here, you can see a reference to how it was being eaten in Milan in 1840. The process of making pasta does get industrialised throughout the 19th century and uh, now. It's a totally global foodstuff and it's produced in virtually every country, actually. In total, dating back to 2021, the world's export trade in pasta amounts to 12.4 billion US dollars. <laughs> so it's pretty ubiquitous. Not surprisingly, Italy is the biggest exporter of it. Other countries make a lot as well as the US, but other countries you don't think necessarily would be high on the list of pasta producers, like Russia, Saudi Arabia, all sorts. In fact, the UK now, we are 29th on the list of pasta exporting countries. France is 14, so it's uh, obviously not a big trade for us these days. It's about $67 million US is our UK trade in pasta. I can only find one company that's, I'm sure there are others, but I can only find one company that's called the Pasta Food Company that dates back to 1956 that's still going and still makes pasta in the UK. But I'm sure there are others, but they're probably foreign owned. I think the biggest is a company called Barilla. It's an Italian company. I mean, they've got operations globally in America and everything, making pasta and then uh, Putoni is another one. These are huge Italian food conglomerates that make it. Going back to the stuff I was saying earlier about British attitudes to food being rather conservative. Although I was not around at the time, but I have seen this hoax that the, and it is very well done, it's a hoax that the Panorama programme did on the BBC way back in 1957, where they did this whole report about the pasta harvest happening in this southern canton of Switzerland, Ticino where the spaghetti harvest was being brought in by the locals and uh, they mocked up all these trees with where they just basically draped spaghetti, cooked spaghetti over the branches of the trees. <laughs> these people, uh, you know, picking it off the tree and putting it in baskets. And, uh, of course, in 1957, a lot of the UK... <laughs> audience just thought that must be how spaghetti was made and that's where it came from and it fooled an awful lot of people it, it is considered as one of the best ever april fool's jokes done on the poor unsuspecting british public 
apparently they had a lot of phone calls, people phoning up asking where they could get their spaghetti trees from so they could plant them in their garden. It is very well done. I think it was helped by the fact that it's narrated by Richard Dimbleby. His sonorous tones and very respectable tones lend credence to anything, you know. So he narrated the the hoax. And uh, it's probably on YouTube. I'm sure you could find it. I haven't actually looked it up. But at the time, it was very well done. And an awful lot of the British public were taken in by this uh, thing about the spaghetti harvest. The idea of the April Fool joke was from one of the panorama cameramen at the time who remembered back when he was at school, one of the schoolmasters had said to the class, you're all so stupid you'd believe that spaghetti grows on trees. Some of it was, apparently was shot at a factory in St Albans where they made spaghetti and some of it was obviously they went to this canton in Switzerland to mock up the spaghetti growing on the trees. Going back to Elizabeth David around that time to get olive oil in this country you went along to the chemist and it wasn't being used for cooking it was being used to put in your ear to loosen your ear wax <laughs> so you've got a tiny little bottle of it that's how uh, insular british cooking had become i just thought will you eating this dish of macaroni although he does use the word vermicelli as well just triggered my interest obviously he hadn't encountered it much before to make a note of describing how it was served in milan and as I say, the word macaroni seems to be the one that was used earlier and very much related to the dried pasta that we know today rather than fresh pasta. And he mentions that they boil it first, which obviously suggests it was the dried pasta that he was eating. April 17th. This was Venerdì Santa, or Good Friday, and I went to the cathedral on this morning to hear the celebration of High Mass. The music, singing, chanting, and the services was very fine, and the congregation immensely large. Congregations far different to those in England as far as regards numbers. The western doors thrown open and the nave and transept filled with people. There are no aristocratic pews or soft cushions but all kneel before their maker without regard to the rank or distinction of the persons. I visited the cathedral again in the evening when it was splendidly illuminated. All the ornaments of the altar was removed, and in its place was a representation of the Mount of Cavalry. That's also known as Golgotha, the scene of the crucifixion. Mount of Cavalry, and the three empty crosses looming apparently against the evening sky. Indeed, so perfect was the illusion that if it had not been for the glittering chandelier behind me, I could have fancied myself in the open air. After this, I went to the church of Santa Ulderico in the Corso di Porto Romana, where a vast number of people were assembled, and here was hung up in various parts of the church large transparent paintings, similar to the scenes in a theatre, representing the different passages of the death of Christ. And I must confess that as much as I had heard or read, I was not prepared for the exhibitions like this in a Roman Catholic church. These things savour, when he uses the word here, savour, he means it in the sense of uh, kind of our reminiscent or our suggestive of. These things savour too much of the theatre, and the people flock to see them with as much levity as they would visit the place I speak of. But experience has taught me that everything in their public worship is more for show and effect than it is for the feeling of the mind. 
There is none of that fervent piety which is so forcibly expressed in the prayers and the litany of the Anglican Church, or the soul-stirring enthusiasm which is heard in the Scottish Church, or the dissenting chapels of our own land. In the Catholic Churches it is all bowing and crossing, reading this prayer in one place and that in another, opening a book with as much care and ceremony as if they thought its contents were gunpowder and would explode in their faces. And then the changing of robes, the burning of candles in broad daylight, the smoke of the incense, and a number of other ridiculous ceremonies. All these render the worship of the Catholic Church a complete mummery, and I have often felt shocked at the conduct of both men and women that have been regular attendants at church immediately after leaving it and rushing into all manners of wickedness, and then laying the flattering unction anointment, to their souls that by a bargain with the priest they could get whitewashed from all their offences. I am aware that there are many men in the Catholic Church that are famed for their learning, piety and liberality of opinion, who are perfectly satisfied that the major part of the ceremonies in the public worship of their church are neither warranted by scripture nor suited to the spirit of the times. A spirit of inquiries abroad on the continent as well as in Great Britain, and many of the absurd ceremonies of the Romish Church serve only as objects of ridicule to the well-informed, and in my opinion keep many of them from attending public worship with the exception of the Spaniards and Portuguese, and the half-Indians, half-Europeans of the Republic of Mexico. The reign of priestcraft is pretty well over, although without it is England, who, being the first to throw off the trammels of the Church of Rome, and who, whilst all other countries, and many of her own servants, think that the time has come for a reformation in her ceremonies and forms, appear by their attachment to Puseyism, also known as the Oxford Movement anxious to return to the old faith and all its absurd forms, ceremonies and institutions. I'm going to stop here to talk a little bit about what William is discussing when he talks about the Catholic Church being rather too much like theatre and um, a mummery, as he calls it, and also this comment that he makes about the reign of priestcraft being over. Uh, it perhaps is reflecting, and I'm only speculating here myself, Obviously, I don't actually know what William was subconsciously thinking, but I wonder if, as a man of science and engineering and the things of this earth, if you like, the empirical things in front of him, perhaps in his own mind, he's beginning to have the stirrings of secularism, the idea or development when the church plays less of an important role in people's lives. In fact, the word secularism was first coined by one of the proponents of it, a man called George Holyoke, and he first used that word in 1851, so only about ten years after William is talking here. Just to say on this section, obviously, as we've heard many times before, William is already pretty anti a lot of the what he sees as rather overblown ceremonies and rituals of the Catholic Church. I think also just to remind us that he is writing this when he's in Mexico and he's very anti the way he sees the Catholic Church operating in Mexico. So I think this is also influencing what he says here about how he sees it happening and working in the churches of Milan as well four years earlier. William at this time is perhaps in a way expressing that beginning of a new era, particularly in the English society, which, well, some people say really only finally evolved until the 1960s when uh, religion really did take much more of a backseat in people's everyday lives 
But he also, as I mentioned, he makes this reference, and it is very much of the time that he's writing to Puseyism, or what's more generally known as the Oxford Movement. He calls it Puseyism because, just to briefly explain, the Oxford Movement started around about the 1830s in England, in the Anglican Church, and it was called that because it was a group of bishops who were centred around Oxford University who essentially didn't like the more liberal aspects of the way the church, the Anglican church was going in terms of its ceremonies and religious practice and outlook. It was actually sparked off by an act of parliament because remember the Church of England is in some ways still governed by the government in a way and um, there were some sort of land reforms related to the church in Ireland that were passed by the parliament. I can't quite get to the bottom of it really but it irked these members of the Oxford movement, particularly a, a man called John Keeble, who then gave a sermon, I think it's called the National Apostasy Sermon. Basically, in the speech, he sets out where the Church of England is going wrong and uh, how it should reform itself. He argues, essentially, the Anglican Church is a Catholic church, is a Roman Catholic church, and it should adhere more closely to the spirit, rituals, liturgy, of the Catholic Church and not be, for want of a better word, more Protestant or Lutheran or whatever you want to say. So it's kind of a struggle, if you like, about what is at the heart of Anglicanism and uh, what it should be. In fact, quite a lot of these members of the Oxford movement later just converted to Roman Catholicism anyway, and it's still something that goes on today. We call it high church and low church. Very simply, you could say the high church is more ritualistic and has more of the trappings of the Catholic church in its ceremonies and more bowing and nodding and uh, opening the Bible as if it had explosives in it. As William says, <laughs> and um, it's all linked into all sorts of things. The Eucharist transubstantiation or whatever it is, you know, whether when you're eating the bread and wine whether it transforms and actually becomes the blood and body of Christ while you're eating and drinking it. All that, people still debate it today. People who don't like their religion hard enough, you know, don't like it lily-livered as it is in the Anglican Church, go over to Catholicism. The Oxford Movement was quite influential, actually. I think you could say that it did at least kind of put a break on the way the Anglican Church in its uh, ceremonies went. And there is what they call Anglo-Catholicism, a branch of Anglicanism now, which is like the high end bit of it. <laughs> you, know, you could call it Roman Catholicism light. If you're being unkind. So when William's talking that, about how in Europe the spirit of priestcraft is over without England, because at that time as he's writing it, this whole Oxford movement is beginning to evolve and he refers to it as Puseyism because Edward Pusey was another leading member of the Oxford movement too, who had written publications essentially arguing the same point of view as John Keeble. So Puseyism was basically just a, another term for the movement. It was later really that it became more widely known as the Oxford movement and um, it continued for quite a number of years with its influence carried on really throughout the rest of the 19th century i just thought in my mind is it william expressing this more secular view of the world that's beginning to evolve 
in my rather simplistic view of it, to me, a very significant point in the rise of secularism, even if he would have uh, not liked it being said at the time, was the publication of On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. And that didn't happen till 1859. So that's nearly 20 years after William is writing here. I mean, to me, that's a very significant moment if certainly you want to see how later the view of religion undoubtedly did change with that publication. As with all these things, you know, they're kind of significant moments that happen, like the publication of that book. But then these things don't come out of nowhere. Other people are thinking these thoughts themselves, are, are wondering at least what the role of faith should be, even if they're not fully going down the road towards atheism. They're beginning to question the role of religion. And this would seem to me only natural in a society that was becoming more scientifically literate and advanced. Almost seems inevitable. Of course, there are many great scientists who consider themselves Christians, and the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, of course, but uh, it's an ongoing debate. OK, so I'm going to stop here. Um, it seems a good point to finish, as William's finished talking about the markets, and now he's... Um, going on about Catholicism and religion, etc., which is, uh, as I mentioned, not unusual. I have enjoyed doing this one. As I said at the beginning, it was a bit different from previous episodes. And, uh, yeah, it's very interesting to hear these descriptions of food. I think what is perhaps interesting, I would suggest, is William's general knowledge about the food and where it comes from and the different kinds we often say these days we're a bit disconnected from our food and its origins and, uh, you know, we're very used to our food being highly packaged and I think I heard an alarming statistic about what they call a ultra-high processed food which is uh, not very good really for humankind and has sort of led to much of the obesity problems that we suffer today in society. And virtually every food that you eat is in some way these days, what would be described as ultra-processed, even something as simple as, as sausage, because uh, they're packed with emulsifiers and things to preserve them. So, whereas Will, obviously, is in an era when the food is very, very much from farm to plate, or whatever you want to call it, or from lake to table in regards to the fish. And I suppose yeah, it's just his talk, I can only describe it as a sort of real awareness of the food. That may just be William, of course. <laughs> he does seem to enjoy a good dinner. But I don't know, I just strike me maybe that's a kind of interesting insight into attitudes around food. You know, food was definitely less processed then. Meat, for example, was slaughtered near the town centres. The way people talk of the varieties of different meat, of these different types of beef and the age of the animals from which it comes and, and all this sort of thing, it's quite detailed, it's quite in-depth, and I wonder if amongst a lot of people there was just this, at that time, better general knowledge about the origins of their food and how it gets to be cooked and then consumed. That's it, really. As I've mentioned before, do contact me through those social media channels, the Twitter account and the, uh, the Facebook account, if you want to. It is always really interesting to uh, get some comments 
however small or <laughs> minor, it's good to know that uh, people's interest has been uh, provoked. So that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. The next one it will be, gosh, episode number 20. I've been doing these podcasts now for over a year. I would love to do them a bit more frequently than I'm able to, but uh, it really does come down to about the monthly time frame in which I can uh, manage to put them together and get them posted. So apologies if sometimes the gap between episodes is a bit long. <laughs> if I didn't have to deal with blooming things like work, <laughs> it would be great to be able to spend all my time doing this. But anyway, that's uh, regrettably not possible. But uh, I do hope you enjoy it, and uh, as I do bang on a bit from time to time, it is nice to be able to reveal these things to you that have never really been made public before. So I think that does make them quite special in a way. I hope people feel that way. Maybe I'm just too damn close with it, Ed. <laughs> as they say in uh, crappy Hollywood movies. Uh, but I hope people can see the appeal. If you have been listening, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you haven't been listening, it doesn't really matter anyway. <laughs> do tell your friends if you think they'd be interested. I do look forward to welcoming you to the next episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.